to recognize ourselves as being interconnected, to recognize that we can get quality of life not from consuming more, but from actually uh, focusing more on those interconnections recognizing ourselves being part of community and recognizing that we're part of the natural world, that we are not um, separate from nature, but we are part of nature. And those, that different way of thinking would lead to a fundamental shift in our economic structures. It would lead to taking away the powers of the transnational corporations that are devouring the world right now and lead to a, a really reorganization of these incredible inequalities we're looking at. So a path of human flourishing leads to a major restructuring of the economic fundamentals that we are living in right now. That's Jeremy Lent, and this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast. I am your host, Joel DeYoung. This is the podcast. This is the place where we get to hear wisdom from the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. And today we get to talk to Jeremy Lent. And I know you just heard the intro. You know how amazing Jeremy already is. And this conversation was really, really special. Before we jump into that, a couple of things going on in Seattle. Crowdsource Choir, it's something that I started earlier this year, and I'd love for anyone in the Seattle area to come and sing with me. So Crowdsource Choir is a monthly drop-in choir in Seattle, reinventing choir for the 21st century without historical baggage and recovering singing as an ancient communal art form that helps us participate in a magnificent whole. And when you go and when you participate and when you give your voice over to the choir, you feel this warm sense of belonging and love and trust and you leave you leave really, really excited about being alive, to be honest with you. So if you're in Seattle this Thursday, we're going to be at the Hillman City Collaboratory from 8 to 10 p.m. And this happens every first Thursday of the month at the Hillman City Collaboratory. So love to see you out there. And another project that is very, very close to my heart because I've been working on it for a decade here in Seattle is a forest restoration project in Seattle. Um, we're working on cheese to green space. We're restoring the forest and we're building a trail system to connect the communities. So um, we're reimagining, we're reconnecting, and we're really providing safe access for the community to a forested place in a very, very densifying city. So if you want to come out, get your hands dirty pull some weeds, plant some trees with me. I'd love to see you. And you can find all of that information at chasty.org. That's C-H-E-A-S-T-Y dot org, first and third Saturdays. So that's what's going on in Seattle. And Jeremy Lent actually came to Seattle. He had some things going on here. And he spared some time 
for this particular podcast, and I'm so glad that he did. Um, I've I've listened to our conversation many times already before I'm even recording this, and I'm going back to it even more because um, Jeremy is such a wise person. He has such a kind heart, and he he has really um, unpacked a lot of things, um, some difficult things to understand with human history and uh, different behaviors that have created cultures that have created actually the mess that we're in today and really simplified things for us and then uh, created some uh, possibilities for the future, um, which we get into in our conversation. So a little bit about Jeremy. He's an author. Um, He investigates the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current crisis of sustainability. Um, He also has a a nonprofit. It's called the Leology Institute. That's L-I-O-L-O-G-Y Institute, which is dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview, both scientifically rigorous and intrinsically meaningful, that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the earth. So hopefully you're getting a sense of where Jeremy's coming from. So the patterning instinct this book was absolutely amazing um and it covers a, a a vast expanse of territory so in time it essentially covers you know from the dawn of homo sapiens to present day and then the possibilities for a future um in geography it's everywhere from across asia to africa europe and the americas and in ideas, it really investigates key questions about who we are as humans and where we're headed. Uh, some of the themes in the book include culture, values, and history. And this is this is like a central theme of the book, which is culture shapes values, values shape history. So then how will our values shape the future? Uh, he talks about our human nature you know, what is our true human nature? And the answer to that question actually may shape humanity's destiny. You know, we've heard this uh, science and religion debate, you know, f- forever. So this this battle, um, he, he, he essentially talks about how this is a false choice and uh, explains why. He talks about power, exploitation, the mindset of the scientific revolution— how it spawned genocides and environmental havoc. Um, it's all kinds of human history. Uh, uh, consumer society, you know, our rampant you know, consumerism, how it's ransacking the earth, and what are the root causes of that? Like, where did this come from? Like, what are we doing? Um, but then, you know, he, he really paints a picture of the future and 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 provides some some helpful insights into, you know, how we can change our patterns of meaning, how we can change our mindsets, how, how we can think of the world differently and, and not, uh, you know, well, how we can change our trajectory from collapse to something of human flourishing. Um, you know, what is the difference there? And we really get into all of that in this conversation. And, um, I really recommend that you pick up the book. It's, it's, it's a really impressive work, and um, I know that it took Jeremy a long time, and 
there i mean the resources alone i mean are there are pages and pages of resources um so he 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 did the work and and he wrote a a profound um a profound book about uh about the patterns of human thought over the course of history and um and and really packages it up nicely um for people who don't know much about that, like myself. So uh, thank you, Jeremy, and thank you for uh, the book. And uh, I hope everybody listening uh, really uh, does go out there and get the book. And um, and uh, if, you're, if, if you like earbuds, if you like <laughs> listening on your earbuds, get the audio book. Uh, take a walk. And go listen to this thing. Um, but the hard copy is beautiful as well. So, uh, okay, without further ado, here is Jeremy Lent, our conversation about his book, The Patterning Instinct. Jeremy Lent, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. Yeah, so happy to be here. It's great to meet you in person too. Yeah, and I, I got some insight into your mind right. <laughs> by reading this right. book. So we're going to be talking about the patterning instinct. Um, the pattern. Let's just start with that. Yeah. I mean, the patterning instinct. There's so much. This book is so dense and it's so rich. And for me, it was a delight to kind of go through and to really look at the history of humanity from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about cognitive history. Right. Um, you want to just kick it off by telling me uh, a little bit about what you mean by cognitive history as opposed to some of the other history books we may have read out there. Yeah, yeah, sure, because it's a different kind of approach to looking at the whole unfolding of human history. And really, cognitive history is, um, I call it that because it looks at the ways in which we as humans uh, kind of have, in terms of making sense of the world, so it's like the way our cognition reacts to the world and makes meaning out of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the themes of the book, and it's something you don't see in most kind of histories, is how the ways in which different cultures make sense of the universe actually creates their sense of values, which then shape history. So you can't just look at history in terms of the sort of kings and queens, or just even in terms of the geographies or whatever. You've got to yeah. look in terms of the values that, that cultures bring to reality around them. Yeah, it's not like yeah. just uh, let's look at what happened, but let's look at the, the, the mind and the, the, the way that humans were thinking about meaning in the universe, how that informs the culture, which shapes the values, which actually shapes what is in the history books. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. Um, so the patterning instinct, the name of the book, so I'm just curious, did, that, did you come up with a name first? Were you like, I gotta look at the patterning instinct or I'm gonna do kind of like a deep dive into this from cognitive history and then you came up with a name? Yeah, it was funny, the name came fairly late actually. Um, and for a number of years as I was working through the first <coughs> layers of ideas, um, I was actually calling it 
something different. I was calling it the tyranny of the prefrontal cortex. Okay. Because um, something you sort of get to see in the book as you get into it is you realize that what makes humans unique, mm -hmm. what gives us this patterning instinct, is this really um, uniquely developed prefrontal cortex that humans have versus other mammals. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of frontal part of the brain that does things like um, think symbolically and it represses our sort of instinctual drives um, and it integrates things kind of thing and humans have particular areas of uh, with prefrontal cortex activity mm -hmm. more extreme than other creatures and what I saw like as I was looking this unfolding of the um, of history, I saw that beginning in the West with the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. they had this this kind of divinity of reason. They, they saw like the effect of the prefrontal cortex. It allows us to think in reason and intellectually. But they were so enamored by that that they said, that is what it's all about. Yep. And the rest of the human experience, the embodied experience, that's bad. You know, Only that reason is what's good. And I sort of saw this as this tyranny mm -hmm. of this idea of what, what came from the prefrontal cortex. But then what was interesting is people, I got a lot of, uh, just negative feedback from people yeah. on this title because they were going, wait a minute, the prefrontal cortex is also good, so mm -hmm. the tyranny sounds like this bad thing, but that's... Uh, and it, it was kind of confusing, and then I have to yeah. try to explain it. So now I've got, to do, I've got to come up with something better than this as a way <laughs> of really getting what I'm trying to talk about. Right. And I, so I, thought, I spent a lot of time saying to myself, what is it that is this really going on mm -hmm. in this whole um, way in which humans make meaning? And yeah. then I began to realize, yeah, we have this patterning instinct that's what really drives everything mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah and so we make meaning with these patterns and then and then the patterns are ultimately what um create the cultures as well right? yes exactly. I mean, it all kind of goes together the, exactly. the uh you call it the pfc right right prefrontal yeah, cortex right. Are, are you familiar with um the um the, there's like a new movement like flow states yes um mm -hmm. stephen kotler he, he, he wrote a book on flow states. They actually, he starts the book off with, um, what's, what's the, um, the publisher of your book? Prometheus. Prome he starts off with the Prometheus story. Oh, yes. Yeah, the, right. the book's called <laughs> Stealing Fire. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right? Sure. But mm -hmm. he, the whole thing about flow is like, now we gotta, we gotta quiet the prefrontal cortex right. in order to get to what's behind because we're, we're like overly focused on this frontal yes. and the analytical side. Um, yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, flow is so interesting. In fact, um, a friend of mine is working on a film about flow, actually okay. uh, really looking at some of these deeper layers of what does flow mean in mm -hmm. terms of uh, what it offers our civilization as uh, as a healing from where we're at, because mm -hmm. we can see our civilization in some ways. Sort of gets back to that tyranny of the prefrontal cortex idea that yeah. our civilization, in a way, is anti-flow. Um, yeah. It's about like if if we think of nature as being this kind of harmony, mm -hmm. our civilization is about imposing uh, this conceptual kind of world on that flow of nature. Mm -hmm. So flow offers this potential to really, at a deeper level look at a different way of making meaning from our lives. Um, the only thing to notice about flow, though, is that it can also be used uh, in ways that are not quite as healing for our future. So, you know, you can have, like, 
Pepsi or Coke can get into, oh, flow's a great marketing tool. And right. you, you know, let's go, when you're in the flow, you know, drink your, and so yeah. you, the, you have to sort of get to some of these deeper levels of what it can right. mean. Right. Otherwise it, it can just be yet, yet another way in which the big sort of transnational corporate system takes hold of an idea and yep. subverts it to make more money. Man, when you, I was reading that section about the book and I was like, holy cow, yeah. like, it was really interesting to, to, to look at the development of the corporation and then how that became like yeah. depersonalized and how mm -hmm. much power it has because you can't sort of like, um, well, you can't point to one thing necessarily, with, with especially you talking about the multinational right. organizations. So they're on all these different parts, and there's not really one arena where you can control what it's doing. Yes, yes. And in fact, um, you know, I, I, what I think is almost ironic, and I, I wrote an article on this some months ago, but you hear a lot of really leading scientists right now talk about the threat of artificial intelligence taking over. And that's this existential threat for humanity. Right. And they talk about, you know, imagine that we develop this artificial intelligence and we tell it your only goal in life, in, in, you know, in your whole existence, is to say, like, make paper clips. And it's uh -huh. so powerful that it thinks that, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll maximize for that. So it turns the whole world into one gigantic paperclip manufacturing facility. And you know, right. it doesn't matter if it destroys everything as a process, as yeah. long as it's making paperclips. And that's one of the dangers of AI. But the mm -hmm. irony is, We've, we're in the middle of exactly that. When we, when we set up the whole corporate model back in the 17th century in Europe, and then it developed in the United States the last 150 or so years, we set up um, essentially an AI that's taking over our world because mm -hmm. we've created this model that says um, the only thing that matters is increasing shareholder value. It right. doesn't matter um, if you're actually humans are better off as a result. It doesn't matter if there's still a natural world. In fact, the natural world is there as a resource to maximize shareholder value. Yeah. And that's become so powerful that most of us live our lives within this system. And this is, that system itself is not like this is one evil genius who's making it all happen. But right. the system itself becomes self-perpetuating. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like the, we, we just sort of go through life with the understanding that this is reality. Yes. This is our reality, yes. and this is the way that the world works. And I, I really appreciated like, um, the, like really understanding the story of how, what was the motivation kind of mm. behind why the corporations were being developed, and then you know, kind of uh, getting an understanding that this isn't how the world has worked. Only until yeah, recently. Exactly. And so many of us, I mean, me too, all of us, we grow up, uh, you know, we, we're sort of faced with advertising from the first few years we can even make sense of anything. And we get to think that's what you do. That's what life is about. Mm -hmm. And really, a part of what I hope this book does for people who read it is really open that understanding that, well, there are different ways of making sense of the world, mm -hmm. completely different ways. And the one that we live in right now is really just one out of any number. And there are positive and negative things to it. It's, it's not as if, as if I'm trying to say that our current worldview is all bad, because mm -hmm. it's led to the development of, you know, of science and an understanding of uh, how to how to do things with the natural world that can be wonderful. I mean, yeah. it's such great progress in health, in technologies, the very technologies we're using now to be able to communicate to other people 
outside of this room, yep. it's great. But it leads to these imbalances that are so terribly destructive. And by recognizing that, I'm hoping that we can get to see, you know, we can actually get some of the great uh, values and ways of looking at what humanity is and what nature is from other cultures and see how that relates to modern scientific thinking too and come up with a way of being in the world mm -hmm. that can embrace technology and science and embrace nature and our harmony with nature too. Right. That was kind of the central theme that I was concluding with is like this harmonic mm. web of meaning, mm -hmm. this harmonic understanding and having that sort of be like a central framing for how we understand the world is, is much healthier and does less damage, right? Yes, exactly. Um, I was hoping to actually uh, dive into the sections of the book a little bit, sure. just to give people kind of like an understanding of what this book is. Mm -hmm. um, and you you kind of you start off with this um, mythic kind of mythic consciousness right. and 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 uh, metaphoric thresholds and um, giving us kind of like this cognitive understanding of where humans have come. I wonder if you might be able to just paint that picture. Um, yeah. Yeah, be, be, like like pre-agriculture. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And it's so fascinating, you know, just to because um, in a way the book is a lot about like peeling the onion, like the yes. layers of meaning. So, well, okay, we have these current layers of meaning, but where did that come from? Yep. Oh, so a lot of it came from, say, Christianity uh, or whatever. But where did that come from? And then you keep going back and back in time, and and. All, all the different layers of meaning all sort of come from the same original kind of source, if you will, which is this original um, sort of shamanic type of uh, mythic consciousness that early hunter-gatherers had on Earth. And then you go further back and say, well, what before humans even evolved, what was unique about humans? Mm -hmm. Which sort of comes to the ultimately to this patterning instinct that early hominids, even before humans, developed, um, which enabled language. And so I guess you, know, you can really look at the development of language as this first huge um, kind of emergent new way of being in the world that mm -hmm. humans began to have. Because with that, they could communicate together and start to, before language, if you will, like, even if a human, a, a pre-human, was able to make some sense of the world and come up with an idea, they couldn't communicate that idea to another person. So it's like everyone lived in little sort of cognitive islands, if you will. Mm. But with language, you could start saying, like sharing an, an idea and a concept. And to, so together, then cultures would begin to make meaning out of, out of the universe. And what you see, um, what's so fascinating is you can look at hunter-gatherer uh, the few hunter-gatherer tribes that are still around in the world. Mm -hmm. But even a hundred years ago, anthropologists really did a good job of, of, of kind of connecting with who was still hunter-gatherers. And you can relate that to the findings from archaeology. And you can really get a sense of what a hunter-gatherer consciousness was. And even uh, tribes as different as maybe in some a jungle in Africa, or the desert, or the Tuareg in the Arctic, um, actually shared um, a, the same sort of way of making sense of things. That's what's so fascinating. Yeah. You'd think, well, they must make totally different sense. Yeah. But there was this same sense of spirits were everywhere. The hunter-gatherers saw nature basically as like a giving mother and father. They saw everything in terms of like that sort of family clan kind of relationship. So all the spirits around, the animals, the trees, even the rivers, 
they, they saw as being alive and spirits and being part of the family that they were part of. So they saw themselves as having spirits. Mm -hmm. And so the shaman would be the person who, through some way or other, moves into a, a different kind of layer of consciousness to actually access that spirit world and could be terrifying and then come back and communicate with um, the, uh, the rest of the people around what mm -hmm. they found. So it was a sense of also transformation. Everything was always in transformation. Spirits would inhabit one animal, then a human, then something else. Mm -hmm. There were no boundaries because they were nomadic. There was no sense of possessions. Nature, basically, if there was a bad, um, if there was a drought in one area, yeah, you'd move to another area yeah. and you'd pick the something that was there. And, the, and there was this, you'd go with the seasons. With so there was a very, very different way of being in the world at that time. Yeah, they had to be in tune with with the world in, yes. in order to survive. Their survival depended on it, which was really interesting to me. Yes, and and the thing is that it, not just their survival, but their flourishing, because hmm. they, you know, we think from our civilization point of view, think, oh, they must have, you know. How do they even manage to survive? And there's a lot of um, uh, sort of interpretations of how hunter-gatherers lived. That they really had um, affluence because they didn't want all the stuff that we have. Right. There was and a they, and studies of uh, a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes show that they spend maybe, on average, maybe no more than two or three hours a day on actually getting their food together oh, in their shelter. True, huh? And they just kind of relax and just do the <laughs> stuff they enjoy because um, their lives were actually a lot easier in a lot of ways. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. The, the, the family, we're all part of a family. Mm. Um, the tree is part of our family, too. Yes. There's, a, there's definitely a completely different respect there um, inherent to that existence. Um, yeah, a giving environment, I think, is what you, yes. you called it. Every day they're connecting with that. Yes. And there isn't the, the worry that um, it's not going to give. Like, That's right. Like I said, it gets to that like scarcity and abundance mindset. Like there's no yes. scarcity in that. It's like no, it'll continue to provide what we need. Yes. Yeah, that is so true. But then one of the things I I point out because I try to make sure to avoid idealizations that mm -hmm. a lot of us are drawn towards, you know. And um, so sometimes you'll see people talking about, you know, that almost like it was a golden age and we lost so much. And and I think yeah. we did lose a lot when we left that hunter-gatherer lifestyle behind. But we also have to recognize um, when those early humans left Africa and they came to North and South America, they saw it as this giving environment. It was filled with what are called megafauna, huge animals, all kinds of animals like elephants um, and um, even uh, like lions. I mean, it was just this, this massive, um, um, gigantic armadillos, okay. uh, totally different than the world that we, we sort of see now in North and South America. But those hunter-gatherers were the ones who actually led to the extinction of probably more than three quarters of the megafauna in North and South America. So while they were going, well, nature is such bounty, simply by virtue of the fact that they had this power from the patterning instinct, the power to make tools, and uh, the power to uh, have more, more power than the, these animals could figure, these little puny humans could have, they led to these big ecological imbalances. Interesting. So that's something just to be aware of. Yeah. And then we move into one of my favorite chapters. I was like, oh, agriculture right. and anxiety. Right. Like, it was, I thought it was interesting that you put those two 
yes. together in the same chapter and the title of that. Yes. Because there was a big shift there, right? That was, yeah, maybe in some ways the biggest shift in all human history and the human experience is when agriculture first emerged. And yeah, one of the interesting things is it's not like, it wasn't really invented. It wasn't like people said, oh, I'm going to do agriculture now because right. it, it, in fact, it was, it, why would somebody want to go from this kind of easeful way of living to sort of settling down, having to, you know, sow seeds, till fields, like weed, keep predators away, all this kind of stuff, and you didn't need to. And what's interesting is that it's sort of like, it's really just self-organized out of uh, different dynamics. As people began to settle down, um, it, uh, they would like leave seeds around which would, uh, which would grow there, and so they'd end up staying more in communities. And as you settled into a community, these new kind of things, new kinds of values occur mm -hmm. in the human experience because you start to think about past and future. You start to say, well, I'll have to sow the seeds now for the future. And um, those people who got lucky or who worked a bit harder start to get more, you know, more crops and they put fences up and you start to get the separation of humans against nature, like keep the wild animals away from our fields. And then separation between humans, you know, well, I made more, I've got more than that person, I don't want them stealing my crops. And, right. then, and then when you get um, more wealth, it's like, well, I'll hire people to keep those other people away. And so inequalities and specialization begin to develop. And the very notion of wealth itself was something hunter-gatherers don't have. If, like if you give a ton of, say, um, like iron, like hoop iron that you can make tools, if you give that to hunter-gatherers, they'll take what they want to use and they'll just throw the rest away and uh -huh. move on. They won't even want to try to store it. So the, the notion of wealth yeah. is a brand new notion, only about 12,000 years old in human history. That was so fascinating. And then their different understanding of time, too. Mm. Well, yeah, one of the things you call it is a sedentary community. Yes, exactly. Sometimes referred to as delayed return societies. Right, because you start thinking about, well, if I do this now, it might, I might be miserable having to like work hard and plant the field now, but you know I'll get these returns like six or nine months from now. <laughs> but then, and then it gets even more intense. Supposing you're in a drought and you have your seed corn that you've stashed aside to plant the next year, and your family's going, we want to eat that because we're hungry. And you've got to say, no, you're going to keep like, you know, on the edge of starvation now, otherwise we don't have a future uh, crop next year. So right. you have to think in these totally different ways. Uh, and, and you get this distrust of nature along with that, because mm -hmm. the hunter-gatherers go, okay, nature's just there for us. If, you know, if we don't like this area, we'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you're stuck in a place as a farmer, if there's a flood, it's like your whole livelihood might be, or a drought, or whatever happens, it might be at stake. Mm -hmm. So you begin to see nature not as a giving, nurturing parent, but as this um, potentially dangerous force that you n need to summon, is there a way you can appease this force mm -hmm. so they don't work against you? Is that part of the anxiety? Totally. Yeah. That's where a lot of the anxiety comes from is this realization that as you build up your stocks of wealth and your, everything, you, you, everything you build up can be taken away from you. And so, you know, it gets you don't trust what the future can bring, and so then you want to build up more wealth 
to try to protect against that. And then you have to build up more separations. What happens if these people who are not so wealthy try to steal my wealth from me, so let me get force to defend my, my wealth. Mm -hmm. And really, that's where the patriarchy first, uh, probably first emerged. People going, well, I spent my whole life getting to be wealthier than everyone else around me. I want my sons to make sure that they get to be the head hunter of this area. <laughs> so I, I want to make sure I have a wife who doesn't go out there and you know have sex with somebody else. I want to make sure that I get to pay. So all these these things that we think of a normal part of the human experience, they only really have existed for the last 12,000 years. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, there's a, you talk about the revolution in values you right. know, during this time, and yes. one of the things you said was agrarian culture emphasized a new suite of values such as accumulation of property, mm -hmm. hierarchies, yeah. and planning for the future while inhibiting the urge for instant gratification. Right, exactly. That's right, and that's, what's so interesting is that we talk about these patterns of meaning, yeah. to make, making meaning out of the universe, that when society is built according to these hierarchies and you have to work so hard to get your returns, then it's natural to start thinking, well, that's how the gods must be up there. So then the giving mother and father turns into this, um, the gods probably have their hierarchies. There's probably some supreme god, just like, you know, if I start to, in my village, there's a clan leader and he has to pay fail, you know, put, and be, pay obeisance to the, the kind of chieftain, right. who then there's some distant king that they have to uh, respect. Well, the gods are probably like that too. So you have this high god, and you have this notion of, well, probably you need to sacrifice. Just like you've got to pay taxes to the king you don't <laughs> even see, you probably have to sacrifice to this high god and tell him how wonderful he is. Mm -hmm. So in ideas of prayer and ritual, so th things that we're used to now in terms of organized religion, that's where those ideas started up. And then the specialization of priests saying, I, I can, I'll mediate for you. I'll tell that yeah. high God to give you a good life. And so that's where all those things started. You just come to me. Yeah. You just come, just exactly. make sure you come to me. It's so interesting. Oh man. And then wealth became the intrinsic value. Right, exactly. Oh man. And, and that also kind of has that undertone of ultimately we're, we're moving f further away from being ha harmonized with nature and there's this distrust yes. and separation that continues to, that, like that gap and that divide continues to widen as you go like further into the That's future right. of the story. That's right, and you see that that first step of separation from nature really comes with the rise of agriculture. Um, but even then, even though great agrarian civilizations were from ancient China, Mesopotamia, Aztec or Inca in, in the Americas, they still saw themselves as having spirits and, the, and nature as having spirits. It was just, there was more like this anxiety around, I better treat these spirits well. But they didn't see this fundamental separation between okay. humans and the natural world. Um, until the first time you really see that is with the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. about 2,500 years ago. And that is what I see as one of the biggest steps in this cognitive history right. of you know, a changed way of relating to the universe. Mm -hmm. Socrates. Um, yeah, Socrates, and really it was Plato who sort of put all his ideas in the mouth of Socrates. Okay. But, I mean, yeah, Plato sort of gives Socrates the credit for a lot of that. That was like a central theme to the book that I, I felt like you kept coming back to that point in history yes. as, as like a major pivot. Um, yes. 
that wasn't what you called. There, there was the axial age that you talked about. Is that the, the axial age? Well, it's part of the axial age. Um, there's a historian uh, from an early 20th century historian called Carl Jaspers, mm -hmm. who was the first person to recognize what he called the axial age. And the axial age, I mean, basically he saw it as an axis of history. Okay. And his notion was that within just a couple of hundred years, between about sort of 400 and 600 BCE, um, all around the uh, Eurasia, essentially, you get these um, new ways of thinking about the universe. So um, you get the, the Buddha arising mm -hmm. in India. You get Lao Tzu and Confucius in China. Um, you get Socrates in, you know, in ancient Greece and Plato. And you get, um, in Israel, you get the, the prophets for leading to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So, and in all these cases, what he saw as a pattern was people began to ask questions, not just about how their tribes live in relation to some sort of set of gods up there, but questions about humanity in general. How should humans be as part of um, of all of humanity? Like, are there sort of universal values mm -hmm. that make sense about the world? And so, so he saw these different thinkers coming up with ideas that we've inherited since then. So he sort of sees that as this axis because so many modern ideas have come from that Because it's happening all over the world at the same right, time. Right, exactly. And so there is like this rise in consciousness that's happening all yes. over the globe. But then the Greeks were somehow, um, like their, their ideas ended up turning into the ones that right. um, kind of overtook all of the rest of them, right? Yes, that's what I see. And I see the Greeks as being unique even among those axial age thinkers that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And what I see is as unique in their thinking, uh, again, both for good and bad. Um, so this is not meant to be an attack on that thinking, nor is it meant to be this kind of glorification of it. But they, for the first time, they kind of conceived this notion of a split universe, where mm -hmm. basically, um, rather than seeing uh, everything being connected. They saw one sort of transcendent universe in a different dimension, essentially, where there was this eternal um, goodness and everything was unchanging. And they saw uh, some sort of uh, eternal creator existing in that place. And they separated, they saw the world as being this kind of mundane, uh, polluted, uh, sort of pale imitation of what this transcendent, uh, idealized universe was actually about. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is they applied that split to their own human being. And they came up with a split human, that a human is a soul and a body. And uh, the soul is what connects us to this transcendent, divine, eternal, good universe. And the body is polluted, and it gets sick, and it, the body is really nothing other than um, a, the sort of tomb of the soul, mm -hmm. or it's a, a prison of the soul. So when you die, well, the soul is liberated to be one with this kind of eternal eternity again. And that is this kind of a, a bizarre, if you will, split. Mm -hmm. um, which had huge ramifications for 2,500 years of thought ever, ever since that time, which has now become, a, a lot of these ideas have now become sort of global. Right, so what are scope. those ramifications? Yeah. Because, well, it's, it's the, the split is the dualism, right, mm -hmm. that you talk about, 
the dualism that still exists in, right. in global consciousness. And exactly. And so that split, um, yeah, that's kind of what we kind of define as um, substance dualism, if you will. There's two different um, kind of substances of, of the universe, mm -hmm. and one is totally separate from the other. And what you see there is this kind of deification of reason, which is why we were saying originally, yeah. I was calling the, this book the tyranny of the prefrontal cortex. This is this idea like reason suddenly becomes all important because it's what connects us with divinity. Um, and the implications of that really kind of flow through all the way to Descartes, to, to, to Christian thought. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then Descartes was really the person in the 17th century who then sort of sets these thoughts in motion for the modern world. Mm -hmm. But there is this notion that if you have this fundamental split between our reason and our bodies, well, if you look at other animals, for example, well, they don't have this human reason that makes us divine. So that means that they are not divine at all. They just like um, just have no essential connection with mm -hmm. any, any source of meaning. So in these older times, there were spirits everywhere. Right. And there was a sense of equality, if you will, of kind of spirithood. But now humans are separate. Mm -hmm. They're separate from nature. There's something unique about them that makes them different and divine. And Descartes and others around his time in the scientific revolution went one step further and started to say, well, nature is just a machine, basically. And we as humans, uh, what we, our bodies are just those machines too, but our minds and our reason make us what are, in fact, Descartes goes even further than saying we, it makes us divine. He says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So he's saying that actually my very existence is actually my mind, is my, my sort of, con that, that intellect. And the rest of me doesn't even, doesn't, isn't even a valid uh, place for existence. So he, for example, endorsed notion of vivisection. If you wanted to figure out how um, a body worked, you could just take a dog, you know, slap it up on a board and cut it open. And, and while it's squealing in agony, well, it doesn't have a soul. So it's not really, there's no real meaning to its feeling. It's just like a machine just kind of making a big noise while you're cutting it open. I mean, he actually uh, supported that. And, and that, of course, is the way that um, in modern times, for centuries now, we've come to see nature. We talk about natural resources. Mm -hmm. Like nature is just there as a resource for us, uh, which has led to a lot of these terrible, terrifying imbalances that we're experiencing now. Yeah, you say the one fundamental truth everyone could agree on at this time was the sanctity of the mind-soul yes. in contrast to the rest of nature. Right, exactly. And you see that through the whole of the, the sort of Christian domination of Western thought right. over a, a millennia till the, um, till the scientific revolution. And then what Descartes did was so interesting is he took this, in the olden days, it was this idea of the soul and the, the body. But Descartes came up with this modern concept of the mind. But to him, the mind and the soul were almost indistinguishable. Okay. And so now in modern times, when somebody talks about the soul, we kind of say, okay, that sounds religious, you know, and that's right. a, in a little category of its own. But we're all happy to talk about mind and body. Yeah. And mind is this, we think of as this disembodied thing, thanks to Descartes and thanks to that whole dualistic mindset. Yeah, mindfulness can be on the cover of Time magazine. Right? Yes, and <laughs> yeah, and that's what, what's so interesting is that even, um, and I, um, 
I'm a, a practitioner of mindfulness myself, mm -hmm. and I, um, I engage in, in meditation, and I love that approach. I think it's so valuable. But even that approach sometimes still falls for this dualistic mindset where um, you can uh, give instructions in, in meditation. Now, um, be aware of your body, and um, be aware, and, and you go, wait a minute, so who's being aware of the body? Mm -hmm. So even in that idea, there's some part of me that is that's what is really me is being aware that I have a body, mm -hmm. as opposed to recognizing that actually I am an embodied organism. Right. There is no, you know, and, yeah. and that leads to a completely different way of relating. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, the, you also said that this formed the foundation of the so-called Protestant ethic. Right. Which created the moral underpinning for modern American society with its emphasis on systematic rationalization and goal orientation. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, coming from the European mindset, uh, it was really the Protestants and the Puritans who were the ones who kind of set the cognitive seeds, if you will, for the way that Americans uh, make sense yep. of the world as opposed to Europeans. And so a lot of that... Um, a, lot, a lot of the ideas that were floating around in Europe at that time was this notion that God um, actually uh, decided who was good and who was bad in the living world and, you, and how you lived your life. If you were successful, that was proof that you were God's chosen. Mm -hmm. And if you were unsuccessful, it was proof that um, God had decided your soul wasn't so good. So then there was this, um, it, rather than going, oh, we need to help the people who are suffering more, yeah. there was this notion of worldly success as a sign of you being this moral, morally good creature that God has decided is, is part of his elite. So there was this, um, this very dangerous sense of like, you know, wealth is a sign that you're doing something right morally that has become kind of entrenched in American society. It's totally entrenched. I mean, that is still yeah. the dominant, I think, I think, paradigm right now, you know, which is you're here to uh, make more money. And, right. And if you uh, have a bigger house or the new car or the new device or whatever like those are representations of like you your value yes in, in your existence mm. and your value in this world it's true and um, what's interesting is if you look at the late 19th century early 20th century in um, in the US you see that this idea becomes very sort of um, there's a, a groundswell of these ideas of positive thinking and uh, you know, if you think positively, then it's almost like a natural law. For even people who didn't, who stopped believing in God, there was some sort of natural law that by thinking positively, all good things happened to you. Mm -hmm. And we see that in today's world. There's all kinds of um, uh, modern uh, um, sort of quasi-spiritual teachers out there who will explain, you know, somehow wealth comes to you through thinking positively and all these wonderful things happen. And it, it's this, it's this, equality identity between morality and wealth and worldly success is so dangerous mm -hmm. and yeah. so pervasive i mean you think about like the all of these like online classes and courses that are so popular that help you think just right you know and help you just like kind of organize everything in just the right place right. so that your life can Look, I don't. They call, well, the good life, right? Yes, right. Even using exactly. the, like the, the dualism of good and bad. Yes, right. Completely true. <laughs> 
So, yeah, so these are a lot of things we see developing in the US. And um, along with that, this notion of the individual as this um, kind of core way to define who you are. Because, hmm. uh, well, you know, you might say, well, isn't that obvious? That's, I am an individual. I'm born and I die. And, but what's so fascinating is that for most of human history and most cultures, our sense of definition is really um, how we are in relation to community. Mm -hmm. And you know, we define ourselves mostly through our relationship with family, with our community around us, and even like through our relationship with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a quite, it's very unusual in history. And, and again, has positive elements, but has very dangerous ramifications once you start seeing yourself as the individual, as the core identifier. Mm -hmm. Because then it's, well, well, why should I care about other people? Right. If you recognize yourself as being part of community, um, a brotherhood and sisterhood of all humanity, then it matters to you if people are suffering uh, from climate change right. in other parts of the world. Um, whereas if you consider yourself as an individual above all, uh, where you might extend that to your family and mm -hmm. you go, okay, so climate change is coming down, all these dangers are happening, let me make sure I look out for number one, I look out for right. myself because that's what I need to focus on. So it leads to very different actions. Yeah, individualism is so pervasive as well, you know, in, in our culture. I mean, it's like yeah. you have to like really consciously try and um, actively and consciously work yourself into a more truer reality, which is that community, like a moving from egocentric mindset to an ecocentric mindset, right. will help um, you know increase compassion, increase exactly. empathy, and and um, yeah, start to help us change the patterns, if you will. Yes, right? and and even increase the sense of meaning in life, mm. because part of what gets lost when you consider yourself to be really nothing other than just this individual mm -hmm. is that you get to lose the sense of connectivity around you. Right. So basically, everything gets to be sort of meaningless other than how it amplifies your status or what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And your relationship with other people gets to be more a matter of what can they do for me as an individual. And meaning, I began to realize as I went through um, the, the sort of deep research of this book is really a function of connectivity. Mm. So the more you feel connected with family, community, um, nature, all yeah. the stuff around you, the more meaningful your life becomes. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, um, I think, one of the great pathologies of our modern society, and we see it most extreme in the US, is that along with this strong individuality is a loss of the sense of meaning and that gets papered over by consumerism. So it's like, okay, great. Um, all the rest of the sort of foundations of meaning are gone, but feel good for the next 24 hours by doing this and watching this show, and then feel good for the next week by going on this like, you know, super vacation, and feel good for the next few weeks by buying this big uh, status car, and your friends will see. And that, that's what basically papers over that sense of meaninglessness. Mm -hmm. and, and then it becomes like a fog. Like you don't even, because if meaning is buying something, um, then it's your, what do you call it? The hedonistic treadmill, right? Right, the, well, the, the hedonic treadmill, hedonic, they call it, right. The hedonic treadmill. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Where you just, it, it almost seems like you're just on it um, because you were born into it 
and then it takes like drastic things to happen, at least for me, like it, it, it took a lot of events that were out of my control to sort of get me to wake up that there's something else. Yes. You know, or like, hey, maybe it's better if I step off. Or um, thank goodness I had that life event that sort of knocked me off of that treadmill. That's right. Because now uh, I'm, you know, I've got jarred. Yes. You know, like if you if you go bankrupt, you get divorced, like those major things, and uh, somebody dies in your life, those kinds of things are, are I see the ones that are actually going to sort of knock you into some sort of oh, there's much more here. Yes. And maybe there is a sense of deeper meaning. Now, now I'm curious about that. I agree totally. And in fact, my life is uh, went exactly the way you were just describing it. Because the earlier part of my life, um, I had actually, um, I'd been in business. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'd started an internet company and took it public. And so I was totally part of that sort of hedonic treadmill, if mm -hmm. you will. And I went through um, things just like you were describing, in fact. Um, my first wife, who passed away some years ago, um, got seriously ill. And the company I'd started, I left to look after her. And I left the company too early. The company kind of collapsed within a year or two. Um, and my first wife, even as she was still alive for a number of years, went through cognitive decline, so I kind of lost my um, that sort wow. of loving relationship I had with her, and it really felt like the things I'd built my life around had sort of collapsed around me. Mm -hmm. So, and I I went through this period of saying I want the wherever my life takes me in the future to be really meaningful. But what is that? And I don't want to just take somebody else's word for what meaning is or what is right. And and that's what led me on this path, this kind of journey of discovery that led to writing this book, The Patterning Instinct, because I wanted to peel that onion and say, these ideas, where did those come from? And, and it was really part of my own journey to find meaning in my life as part of that. Carl Jung would call that the dark night of the soul, right? Yes, absolutely. On, on the journey. Yes. When there's, it doesn't seem like you could go any further down, and then you do. <laughs> yeah. You know, in and terms then, of, if you're, uh, you know, this book really wakes me up to, um, metaphors in a different right. way too because even when i just said that down like exactly. down is not bad yeah. it's not necessarily Isn't bad that fascinating it, yeah. yeah or like we we say so often like oh well that's good oh that's bad right you know we're just like you know placing these things in like yes. the, these dual frames of mind and it's so ingrained <laughs> like so i'm trying to like consciously um turn that off i even said to my wife the other day uh we were talking about something and then i was like you know i want my life to be and I was like, wait, no, because that's what you called in the book. Like, then you're viewing your life as a container. A container, And you're exactly. filling it with stuff. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me just not speak for a little while. I know, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what, um, it, it was really this uh, cognitive linguist called George Lakoff, uh, who uh, just a couple of decades ago um, was the first person to actually show how, in fact, our, all, of our con all of our abstract ideas that we have as humans, we're so sort of proud about, they all come from our embodied existence. Mm -hmm. That we actually can't even think of an abstraction without starting from our bodily lived life. So just like, like you were saying, there's up and there's down. You know, up is usually good and down is usually bad. Mm -hmm. um, but down can also be profound, too. You know, so, right. um, or there's um, warm and cold. Or you know, if I can say to you about something that 
happened yesterday. Oh, she gave me a warm smile. And actually, yeah, she didn't give me anything. She moved her facial um, <laughs> muscles. Um, and it wasn't warm. The, the temperature didn't rise in the room, but it felt warm. And so all of these concepts that we have mm -hmm. come from our sort of physical lived reality. And that's what's, so one of the things I really explore in the book is how, as cultures, we do that. Mm -hmm. So um, this notion of transcendence we were talking about with the ancient Greeks that we live in now is a sense of, well, if up is good and down is bad, then really up must be really good. Yeah. So, so transcendent. And you know, so many people, even um, in uh, real conscious thinkers today, might say, think that what I need to do is transcend my, my ego, whatever. Right. And um, while there are issues, of course, about having uh, a life that are too driven by our ego, it depends how you define that. <laughs> as soon as we get into this notion of transcending our ego, mm -hmm. we start to get into these divisions yeah. within ourselves as a person, rather than uh, recognizing the possibility of integrating things. Right. So there's so much to be discovered from recognizing these core metaphors we use. And in integration is such a healthier way to look at it, mm. um, because it keeps us, like our bodies, especially in this culture, our, our bodies are, are bad. If right. you know we're not in shape, you yes. know, or if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then we're broken and then we should be cast into the garbage with everything yes. else because, and and it's such a healthier way to think about integrating yeah. these things into, our, you know, our reality and the way that we think. That's right, and, and even, uh, given uh, this dualistic culture we live in, even people who get focused on making their body fit and healthy will oftentimes still see that as a, as a machine. So, you know, just like they want to make their car work really well, so they, right. they, if they're mechanics, they'll really like soup it up. So they work on their bodies in that way. You know, I'll work out this amount of stuff. I want my body, I want my muscle to look at a certain way. Or mm -hmm. I, I want. So the, their body becomes this vehicle for their. Uh, for what they want to attain for themselves, as opposed to this integrative way of being, of recognizing that your embodied existence, uh, part of your, part of who you are, is the body itself, and the body itself might want something different from what your brain thinks you should be doing with your body, mm -hmm. and it might be that you could be pushing your body too hard, yep. um, and actually not necessarily giving your organism uh, the true, a truly integrated and fulfilled experience. But actually, uh, you know, pushing um, because your mind is seeing itself as separate from the body in that way. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated <coughs> how you articulated how the different um, major religions, you know, kind of view that that yeah. piece of it. Like our soul and our body are split, you know, and how the Christianity viewed that, and then. Well, you talked about um, the Indian. Yeah, uh, Vedic culture. The Vedic, which is that yeah, leading to Hindu. Yeah, uh, I would Hindu like to talk to you Hindu. about that a mm -hmm. little bit because, um, for one, one major theme that I, I gathered was that uh, monotheistic cultures um, create intolerance, and right, and and that was a major theme mm -hmm. through line the kind of that I found in as I was reading about those different um, ways to. Uh, incorporate religion into life. If there's only one God and one truth, then everybody else is, and mine is right. Right. Then everybody else is, <laughs> must be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's problematic, yeah. right? But um, I I started to get really excited in the chapter of um, organizing the principles of the universe. 
Right. Because I think when you got into like the Chinese um, religion, would you call it? Yeah, or well, cosmology Taoism. maybe might be a way of, uh, yeah. You know, that brings up, uh, you talk about cosmology quite a bit. Can you just first, before we dive into that, like uh, define cosmology and how yeah. do you view it? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, and especially as opposed to religion. And, you know, we can sort of choose how we define some of these terms. They're not mm -hmm. like, there's not one definition. But basically, I think when we use the word religion, we usually mean um, something that has some kind of um, an organized way of looking at the universe that has some sort of magical concept to it. Either we have a god up there <clears throat> or there's some sort of supernatural um, concept applied to what we're thinking about. So we don't mm -hmm. usually talk about, say if you have a scientist who's talking about understanding the cosmos through science, we don't talk about that as religion, right. as, as a religion so much, because they're saying, okay, we just look at what's empirical. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a cosmology, as opposed to religion, the distinction I make is it can be a way, a systematic way of understanding the universe mm -hmm. that may or may not involve positing some sort of supernatural element mm -hmm. or, or but could actually involve other ways of doing it and and what gets me excited about the Chinese the traditional Chinese cosmology as I talk as mm -hmm. I talk about it is even while there are some elements of Chinese thought that do come up with ideas of spirits and uh, mm -hmm. what we might call gods or supernatural elements the the fundamentals of the way they make sense of the world don't require any belief in anything outside of our material um, reality mm -hmm. um, and relates so much to what a lot of modern, um, very advanced systems thinkers understand in making sense of the world. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was one of the greatest moments of discovery in all these years I spent researching this book. Like, wow, here is a traditional culture with these great um, just millennia of of embedded wisdom about understanding how humans can live in the world. And the, the cosmos, the cosmology that, um, that arises from that is actually fundamentally no different than the one that modern systems thinkers, complexity scientists and theorists, mm -hmm. recognize we can make sense of scientifically. So obviously in our world today, there's this deep divide between science and religion, mm -hmm. or, or even science and meaning. People like see science as just being the source of um, understanding how one thing relates to another, right. meaning is something totally different. But I started to think, well, you could actually recognize that there's meaning in the universe, meaning yeah. in our lived existence, that is actually scientifically verifiable and valid uh, through recognizing that. That aligns with these understandings of cosmology. Right. Um, I, I think we're in a really exciting time because of the advancements of science mm -hmm. and, and now it's aligning with a different, co like a, an understanding of cosmology and when you can bring those two together and they're not opposing each other, yes. then everything starts to harmonize. And, right. and, uh, and it becomes, like your re reality becomes magical if you can bring those things together. Yes, <clears throat> exactly. Or, you know, and if, if the, the word magical might lead some people to reject that and say, well, what's that about? <laughs> or maybe even using the word miraculous, the, mm -hmm. this feeling of this awe, of, of once you recognize a deep interconnectedness, mm -hmm. and you can recognize that through a, 
uh, rigorous scientific spiritual under, um, scientific systems understanding, that becomes spiritual because you go, you realize that all is one and all is connected. And so oftentimes, um, many people perhaps who listen to this podcast might have had um, some peak experiences in their life where you have this amazing realization of oneness, of wow, we're all one. And these are sometimes moments, I've certainly had these moments in my life, they stay with you. They mm -hmm. are, those are these me, um, points of meaning that sometimes can absolutely affect how you live your life every day from that point onwards. And oftentimes that is seen as something separate from science, of course. You know, that's just my, my sense of this oneness. Mm -hmm. But that's where a lot of findings in modern systems thinking, looking at the interconnectedness of all things, the interconnectedness mm -hmm. of ecologies, uh, of the very interconnectedness of our energies together as we're talking together. Um, once you recognize those things, you realize that sense of oneness is just a deep insight into what is scientifically valid and verifiable. Right. It's not like, like oh, that's not science. That is, that is science, but in our embodied experience. Right, which makes it that much more exciting. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And then the experience thing, when you have those transformative experiences, that's what lights you up like right. to a different reality that'll get you... Um, excited about continuing within your curiosity down that path or exploring it. That's right. Um, you were talking, you got into, the, the, how do you even say this, Key and Lee? Oh, Chi and Lee. Chi and Lee. Yes, oh, I've right. heard the word yeah. Chi before, but yeah. Yeah, it's so it's spelled QI. Don't ask me what, that's just how, um, but uh, <laughs> whenever you see the word QI in Chinese, uh, um, talking about Chinese culture, it's just pronounced Chi. It would be easy if they just spelled it C H I. I really appreciated that that part of the book because we had been through all of these different cosmologies up to this point, and now we're exploring this one that you talk about is actually one that is uh, has a longer um, historical time frame than the rest of them. It's sort of been consistent right. consistent throughout because, like Ch Chinese. Cosmology has lasted longer than any of these other ones because it started early, yes, right? <clears throat> exactly. And so, you know, when ancient Egypt was around, they, uh, the early Chinese had these ideas. Ancient Egypt is just sort of dust and archaeology digs. But um, China, these ideas are still alive from one generation to the next. That's what's so amazing. It's really cool. And it, and it supports this idea of um, coherence and self-organization, right. and those, those things are, are coming into the, um, the, the business world as, as the new world of work, and, which gets me really excited of, okay, um, there's this whole capitalistic thing that we mentioned earlier going on um, where the corporations are, these elusive corporations that are doing a lot of destruction, but now if you can start integrating you know, some of these self-organizing principles and understand a cosmology that is coherent right? Um, and starting to shift the way that we organize more in alignment with that, then um, I don't know, we get to a healthier place. Yes. Yeah. I think that that is so true. And, um, and I wonder if it's a good idea to talk a, a little bit more than about these Chinese concepts of qi. Oh, I'm the, just excited so, about it. <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I imagine, um, you know, people listening then might be wondering, well, how do these things all, all relate well, to let each me, other? Well, let me, before we yeah. move on, there was the one um, metaphor that you used that 
that jumped out at me, which was the candle flame. Right. Yeah, and I can read this. If um, you sure, want. Okay. sure. The, a simple way to understand this, and you're referring to Lee. Right, yes. Is to consider a candle flame. The flame burns. Every molecule that originally comprises the flame vanishes into the atmosphere. Each moment the molecules making up the flame are different, yet the flame remains an ongoing entity. In scientific terms, we can understand the flame's organizing principles in terms of the re relatively stable relationship between the wax, the wick, the flame's heat, and the oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm. That that was yes. really helpful for me. Great, yeah. That's what's yeah, and so and that's what's so fascinating is that um, the we once we begin to see the world in this different way, we see everything everything differently, and so the the word Li itself really uh, can be translated as the <clears throat> the organizing principles then mm -hmm. of the ways the principles of how one thing relates to the other. Uh, and what's so fascinating, if you think about something like that candle flame, that we see it as this stable entity. So one minute we look at the flame, we look at it again another minute, we see the same flame. But all of the stuff that the flame is made of has disappeared, and new stuff is there. And so what keeps it stable? What keeps it together? And that's basically the, the Lee, the organizing principles, some are oftentimes more important than the actual stuff that something is made out of. That's so fascinating. And the same applies with our own beings, our, our own bodies. And so something I love to talk about is just think of a photograph of yourself when you were a little child. And you know, you look at that picture and you know that's you. But then um, virtually every cell in that child's body was, is no longer existing in you. There are some cells that stay in you for your entire life, but even those cells, uh, the actual molecules that they're made of change. So you can be virtually certain that there's no molecule in that little kid that is in you now, and yet you know that's you. So what is it that connects you to that person? And the answer is it's the organizing principles. Those ways in which things relate are what really matters more than this stuff that, that, um, that, that is actually relating one to the other. And when you think about how that then applies to the world in general, that helps you to get a sense of our deep interconnectedness, that it's our connections that are more important than um, our sort of individual elements. Mm -hmm. So the relationship between things are important. So that applies when you look at something like climate change. Um, you have to look at the thing from a systems point of view yeah. and recognize that our economy relates to the climate and that the disparity in wealth relates to the climate. And what we do now has a relationship to what happens a generation from now. And start focusing on these deep connections rather than just try to focus on one individual solution, like, oh, renewables, or, right. oh, we need to do this. We have to look at the whole systemic way in, things in which things relate. Mm -hmm. to really get to deeper answers. Yeah, in the idea about the photograph, you, there's this, um, this transformation that continues to occur, right? Because you're yes. shedding, you, mm -hmm. it's like it, there's an existence of a person, but it's evolving, and it gives you that kind of, it gives you that understanding of evolution as something that's happening in every single moment. Yes. And, and now, now you're understanding that we're all connected and evolving with these organizing principles, and that gives you a much healthier 
and more exciting, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a relief to think about that we're all sharing like the right. similar experience and similar values. It becomes less like, I gotta figure my, out. I mean, like what am I gonna do with my life and my right. life doesn't look like that and like that and I'm gonna go crazy, but whoa, everything is actually working towards the same, Yes. to the same end, if you will, where it's moving in the same, same direction. I, I agree with you, Joel, so much. And, and there's a sense that um, once we recognize that we're part of uh, what, uh, what I call is the, the sort of Chinese conception is, I, I call it the harmonic web of life. Mm. And we're all sort of part of this web. And by recognizing that, again, it helps with our sense of identity. So mm -hmm. moving away from this individual sense that I, I'm this island separate from everything yeah. else, once we see ourselves as being part of everything else around us, it gives a more relaxed way of being with each other. Um, and it also makes us aware of those responsibilities that come from that too. Right. So the, the, if, I'm, if I'm feeling in a bad mood and I uh, you know, like maybe say something in a grouchy way to somebody else, that has reverberations. Then that affects that person's reality for some period, which then can affect something else. And you can think of it as almost these deep layers of interconnection going on and on in ways that you never even know about. So um, that, that gives a responsibility to live your life. It's sort of almost like a foundation of ethics to live yeah. your life in a way where you're putting out this li or these, these um, pr connective principles in positive ways. Mm -hmm. But it also gives a sense of possibilities that you don't know, you know, if you're doing something, you don't have to just be focused on seeing the results. Mm -hmm. But if you act in a certain ways, you don't even know what uh, multiple layers of connection that can lead to at some point in the future somewhere else. Yeah, and being okay with the present, right? Yeah, exactly. So it gets away from that goal, like, hey, there's always something out there that I'm trying to get to. Right. Um, which can be terrifying and, and just, it, it, it's, it's uh, it fills you with anxiety, you know. Right. I mean, if yes. you're always when you're never where you're supposed to be, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's an awful feeling. Yes, which comes back to that original idea we were talking about at the very beginning about the the flow mm -hmm. and how um, when we allow our what I call our conceptual consciousness, that prefrontal cortex-driven yeah. consciousness, that goal orientation, when we allow that to dominate us it gives us that anxiety mm -hmm. rather than just being present with what we're doing, mm -hmm. but recognizing that it's part of this kind of future flow, but also recognizing that we can't control that flow. Right. So the best we can do is really be integrative with all of the different things happening in us from one moment to the next. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, I mean, that gets us to, you know, some of the recommendations that you're making at, at the end, you know, of the systems view, um, as a way better, more healthier paradigm um, to to use for moving through the world. Right. Um, um, I wonder though if we could if we could talk about more of the present right now, mm -hmm. where we're at um, present time, because um, there's a lot of history in this book that brings us to the present. But, yes. But now the present and all of these different patterns. Um, have given us a sense of meaning in uh, different cultures, but now we're in a we're in a present time where the culture is pretty much global 
culture. Or right. it's, it's all moving in that direction, right? So communication, it's not like you're looking at um, Europe over here and China over here mm -hmm. and they're thinking differently. It's like the whole thing is now blanketed in, in kind of a, a pattern of, of meaning. Yes. What is that? Yes. <clears throat> um, big question, what, <laughs> what is that current pattern of meaning? And really, I think as a result of the last couple of hundred years of uh, first European and then really Western um, imperialism yeah. and colonialism and, and now um, economic domination, the primary pattern of thinking that drives our global economy, that drives um, the global forces, um, have come from this dualistic um, paradigm. It's this underlying, we're talking about metaphors, and the underlying metaphors we're looking at here are things like conquering nature and nature as a machine um, and seeing nature as a resource um, and seeing humans as fundamentally separate from nature and this belief that humans are fundamentally selfish, which is absolutely not true. And it's a myth, but it's a modern myth that people are so inculcated with that they don't even question. Um, and those are the things that drive uh, what, our, what our global civilization is doing right now and driving us potentially to a precipice. So um, in that final chapter of my book, I look at trajectories to our future, uh, where looking at all these different um, uh, forces over history to our present and where is that taking us? And, um, I think we're in a very um, unstable time right now. And if you look at the big sweep of history, there have really been these two major phase transitions in the human experience, when we first had agriculture, and then when the scientific revolution uh, emerged in the 17th century. And not just me, but a lot of people looking at our current situation realize that we're in the middle of a, a different transformation, a massive transformation in the human experience this century. The question is, what is that transformation? And one possibility could be a collapse, and that we are um, overusing those, quote, natural resources at such an unsustainable rate. So we're not just talking about climate change, but deforestation, um, loss of uh, fisheries in the oceans, um, the, like you, there's going to be a crisis of drinkable water um, before too long, um, desertification, every single, we're using our topsoil up at such a rate that um, some United Nations scientists think we have only 60 years left of topsoil on the earth and, and because we're not um, doing our agriculture in a sustainable fashion. So we could easily be leading to this overshoot and collapse of our civilization. Um, which is a, a huge thing to recognize. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, you say, well, why would we even, why aren't we doing something about it? And I think one possible reason why is because a lot of the affluent, most powerful groups in the world, even they can recognize that, but they go, well, it's not going to affect us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we'll be okay because we've got our, um, we've got enough wealth and, we, you know, we'll look after ourselves and look after our next generations, which leads to this other potential uh, trajectory of what I call techno split, where the affluent classes of the world um, just get so connected uh, 
through the internet, they'll even have neural implants to connect their minds with each other and then genetically enhance themselves so they can become like these kind of superhumans, if you will. And meanwhile, most of the rest of the world are left dealing with the devastation of climate change and the devastation of all this resource loss that we're talking about. So we'll actually become two different uh, entire species. And I think that's a real possibility that we need to be aware of because there's this massive moral responsibility that comes with that. If we recognize ourselves as all being humans together, mm -hmm. well, we can't accept that kind of bifurcation that we could be moving to, right. but a lot of things could be moving in that direction. And so those are two terrifying scenarios, but there is a, another scenario of real human flourishing, of actually being able to be on the earth in a way that can allow humans to live a full, live fulfilled life without destroying the earth at the same time. And so, you know, to me and a lot of people obviously want to go down that path and ask what's required for that. And I think ultimately what's required for that is to change those, alt uh, those underlying metaphors of meaning that we were talking about, to recognize ourselves as being interconnected, to recognize that we can get quality of life not from consuming more, but from actually uh, focusing more on those interconnections recognizing ourselves being part of community, and recognizing that we're part of the natural world, that we are not um, separate from nature, but we are part of nature. Mm -hmm. And those, that different way of thinking would lead to a fundamental shift in our economic structures. It would lead to taking away the powers of the transnational corporations that are devouring the world right now, and lead to a, a really reorganization of these incredible inequalities we're looking at. So a path of human flourishing mm -hmm. leads to a major restructuring of the economic fundamentals that we are living in right now. Mm -hmm. Who's working on this? <laughs> so many people. Right. I mean, and, and that's the thing. That's one of the reasons why I feel, in spite of what we see as some terrifying uh, trends going mm -hmm. on in the world right now, there is real serious reason for hope mm -hmm. because there are so many organizations out there working at different levels of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the, at the global level, we have like some great uh, organizations focusing on fighting climate change, but mm -hmm. in a radical place, not uh, just, yeah, not, not the renewables are not a good thing, but that's mm -hmm. not the way to shift these fundamentals. Mm -hmm. the, uh, you get organizations like 350.org or Greenpeace or Amazon Watch, really looking at deeper ways of how we need to change our lives. Mm -hmm. And there's one I, I love, it's a small one with a big idea, it's called climate mobilization, that looks at uh, what's going on with the climate right now as an existential risk that, similar to the one that the United States experienced when, with Pearl Harbor, and when um, FDR mobilized the whole country around a new organization mm -hmm. to, to fight this existential risk. People said it couldn't be done. He totally transformed the economy in a couple of years, and it was successful. And their notion is, uh, we need to do the same thing to do with the climate right now. We need to mobilize. Um, so there's so many organizations that are looking at these things in a fundamental way. You talked about a tipping point, too, which mm. I thought was really interesting, because mm. um, you used the percentage of 3.5% of the population. Right. It's only that small that's required to, well, well what would be mm. the requirement? Is it um, 
to, to people to have a, a systems worldview that views the interconnectedness? Is that the 3.5%? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, yeah, and uh, what, so what you're um, talking about, the, the way where this 3.5% number comes from is um, there have been studies done looking at all of the uh, popular political movements of the last 100 years and to try to identify what are the tipping points where if a group, um, a, a, pub, a grassroots group wants to try to get power back from, uh, say, an occupying power or tyrannical power, what's required to actually get to that place mm -hmm. of shifting? And what they found was a couple of important things. One was that nonviolence was the way to do it. Violent groups fighting insurrections virtually all failed. But nonviolence was more successful. And one reason why is because if, with a nonviolent group, normal uh, common people seeing that group would be more ready to be part of it mm -hmm. because it just feels morally and ethically like something they want to be part of. And, and it's, it's not as scary. <laughs> well, it's safer, but oftentimes it's not safer because the, um, the oppressing group can be applying violence to you. Good point, yeah. So it's not like um, it just means walking in the streets and if somebody starts shooting, don't go to the next demonstration. Right. It means being ready to actually put yourself on the line, mm -hmm. but you're not actually causing the violence. And so from a moral point of view, um, when, and of course we know it happens all the time, when atrocities happen and people march peacefully and um, some national guard or army will can shoot innocent people, what happens is when you see this disconnect, um, normal human people with human empathic feelings are outraged. And that's actually oftentimes the thing that will turn, where it goes from being just a small minority of people yeah. to the vast bulk of people saying, we're not accepting this anymore. We need something different. Yeah, maybe that's happening with gun violence right now. I would love to, that to be the case, and let's, mm -hmm. let's hope that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. So nonviolence. Nonviolence. And, and so when they did these studies, they discovered that um, when the tipping point was about 3.5% of the population was, fully, was really devoted to this cause, mm -hmm. of re really ready to give themselves and, and uh, devote themselves, sacrifice themselves to uh, this place of liberation, that that was when these relatively small movements became massive grassroots movements and ultimately toppled um, occupying forces or tyrannical uh, powers. Mm -hmm. So it gives this hope that if there's enough of us can recognize it, and like you say, well, what is it? Yeah. What, what defines that 3.5%? Yeah. And I do think that, I think it's somewhat amorphous, but I think yeah. that those of us who are part of that, uh, hopefully getting to 3.5%, we know it. We know that we're not accepting these underlying values. We know that, um, and we can come at it in different ways, from spiritual places, mm -hmm. from political places, from community places, but those of us, and people listening to this podcast, when you're hearing this, I'm sure um, people who are there know I'm one of those people because I don't accept these values and I know there are different values and I live my life according to that. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the hope comes from is that we are making these connections almost at a mycelial level, like mm -hmm. beneath the earth, like these kind of fungal networks that connect the trees in a forest. Mm -hmm. And so even though the headlines might focus every day on, you know, Trump does this or that, outrageous thing or, you know, th this is what's going on in the, in the Senate or whatever. Um, 
Those might be what the headlines say, but what the headlines don't say is, is that you know, yesterday, 50,000 people got more attuned to realizing climate change is an existential threat mm -hmm. and are deciding they're going to do something in a different way going forward. You don't read that in the headline, but that's the kind of stuff that I think is happening right now. Yeah, and what excited me too, what, when you spoke about globalization in the book, as, as being this opportunity, like the networks, the network effect that we have right now creates right. that opportunity to accelerate getting to that tipping point because of social media, because exactly. of the internet. Yeah. Exactly. So while the internet has um, what we're focused right now on a lot of the scary ramifications of things like trolling and quote-unquote fake news and right. some of the things that are being, where it's being manipulated in a negative way, it also does represent, in my view, real huge hope for a transformative uh, possibility in the future. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on education? Because I think about my own kids and I'm like, well, that's that's hope for the future right now. Like, let's let's try and um, at a young age instill a, a different idea, this interconnectedness. Yes. Like we're all interconnected at a young age. So, because for me, I feel like I'm doing, I'm midlife and I'm undoing mm -hmm. <laughs> and then trying to sort of right. redo and, and with a kind of a, a new consciousness. Like, I think that's right. I think education is all important. Mm -hmm. And I think that one, I think there's both a negative and a positive element of looking. I mean, one is to try as hard as, as we can when we're raising our children to shield them from this oppressive um, onslaught of consumer messaging, shield them from television to as large extent as possible, and shield them from some of the social media stuff that uh, tells them you have to be this way rather than another way. Mm -hmm. So that's one element I think is so important. And then I think to really uh, be conscious of trying to offer to our children the kinds of schoolings that are out there that do focus on um, bringing the children's own creativity out and recognizing our connectivity. Mm -hmm. So any education that offers this notion of a systems understanding of things, mm -hmm. and there are ways to offer that out there, um, I think are, that's the greatest gift, I think, that a parent can offer for their child and to the world, is for, the, is for our children to grow up with this recognition. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we've tried um, to keep our our kids away from the devices, you know, as long as possible. Right. My oldest are like 11 and 12 now. So now it's, it's like this messy integration, yes. right? Because you don't want to shield them from culture. Right. They got to be a part of the world. Yes. And we don't want to just go down the path of we're going to be over here doing our thing. Yes, we have, exactly. Because that defeats the whole yeah. idea of like interrelatedness and like that we have to understand that we're all in this together. I think you're so right, and I think that what it's about is, in the very early years of a child's upbringing, is to really have and instill those deep values of connection um, and compassion and uh, really a sense of self-confidence arising from love and from being connected yeah. in community, so that when they get into those teen years, hopefully there's enough trust built up mm -hmm. that you can be talking with them about all those things pulling them in these other directions and helping them to navigate that in their own way. Yeah. Could you say a few words about love? Because I, I often think that these conversations about um, our world's problems, what we need to do, 
um, jumps to kind of a solution mindset and and misses kind of this interconnected mm. flow of love that is really at the heart of everything. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. It's so true, and um, and I agree with you. And you know, sometimes uh, I think people. Like, we really, this whole notion of love is so important, and then there's this group of people out there who might, as soon as they hear people talking about love, they'll dismiss it as kind of new-agey thinking, and mm -hmm. then that whole notion gets dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to really regain that sense of love, and, and for that word to be regained in our whole discourse as what's important. Mm -hmm. And I, when I talk about love myself, I see it as really um, simply the recognition of our connectedness, the realization of connectedness. And when you realize that that's what love is, it doesn't have to be this woo-woo stuff or this wishy stuff or this hallmark card thing. It's this recognition of connectedness, that we're connected, mm -hmm. that all of us as humans are connected. And that is, that is what love actually is, is this realization and the actions from that realization mm -hmm. of our connectedness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the relationship and the movement within it. Yes. Not that it's an abstract idea, but it's, it's in the actual movement of the, the candle. Flame, right. right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the candle burning, right? Mm. Um, you have a, a non-profit, right. Leology. Right, exactly. Um, want to talk about that? Sure, yeah, I'd be, be happy to. So um, the Leology Institute um, is something I put together in the last few years to offer a worldview that is built on that sense of connectedness, that sense of integration. Mm -hmm. uh, and the word leology comes from that Chinese word li, which means the um, organizing principles. Mm -hmm. And so ology is like the study of. So leology is really like the sort of embodied investigation of the, of the principles of the universe, mm -hmm. the ways in which we're connected. And the idea behind it is to offer a, a framework that could allow humanity to thrive sustainably into the future. So recognizing that right now we have these dualistic mindsets, mm -hmm. we have these core metaphors that destroy meaning and that are leading to an unsustainable path for humanity. But what, can, what sort of framework can we have that our values can actually build on that lead to a real nourishing, flourishing future? Mm -hmm. And that's what Leology tries to do, is looking at some of the best insights from traditional wisdom, from East Asian Taoist ideas and Buddhist ideas and indigenous wisdom, mm -hmm. and seeing how those connect with modern systems thinking and complexity science to offer a real framework of meaning that we can all um, just it, it's not like a set of principles that you have to fix yourself into, but almost like use as a framework for your own uh, development of your own sense of meaning. That's helpful. And how do you do yeah. that? How does the Institute do that? Um, right now, I offer, uh, I've been offering workshops in the Bay Area for the last few years. I'm thinking of um, making these a little bit more accessible by offering them in the form of webinars, mm -hmm. so anybody around the world can be connected with that. Mm -hmm. um, and you can check out more on my uh, Leology website. It, um, it's just leology.org, L-I-O-L-O-G-Y.org. And um, the, I'm working on another book as a follow-up from this Are book, okay. which is actually called The Web of Meaning, mm -hmm. um, Integrating Science and 
traditional wisdom to right. find our place in the universe. And so a lot of these ideas we're talking about, I'm going to be fleshing out at a deeper place in this next book. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Well, well thank you, well, We're going to have to do this again, then. That would be great. I'd love <laughs> it. Yeah. And so today mm. you were just at uh, Seattle U, right? Right, exactly. And this weekend I'm here in Seattle because uh, um, I gave a talk at a search for meaning festival that Seattle University puts on once a year. And that was, uh, so I gave that talk yesterday. Great. Um, really lovely uh, festival, bringing in thinkers and authors from all over the world to talk about different ways in which we find meaning and very socially conscious and socially aware of meaning being um, about social justice too, which I loved. And this afternoon, actually talking with um, the um, wonderful author and activist David Corton. Mm -hmm. We're talking in Bainbridge Island together at a bookstore. There. Yeah, we're hoping to come. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm going to shoot home and grab the kids. And Super. They love bookstores. Oh, great. So they'll well, be over in the comic book section. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be lovely to see you. Yeah. Super. So we're going to come yeah. and uh, hear you guys too. Well, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Joe. Yeah. What a great conversation. Just such a pleasure to be talking with you. I'm today. sure thanks. we're going to be talking more. Yeah. Um, and thank you for your book, um, The Patterning Instinct. And just to give everybody a heads up, if you're like me and you fall asleep while you're reading, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon on Audible, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. And I, I really enjoyed that, to put it in the earbuds, yes. too. Walk down the street and listen to it and then come back to the book. So... Um, it's been a pleasure, and if anybody needs to get in touch with you. Um, yeah, the best way is um, if you go to my website, which is just jeremylent.com, all mm -hmm. one word, um, there's, you can just sign up to my, my newsletter, and there's an email address. You can just info me, um, I think, info at jeremylent.com, and I'm always happy to receive emails from people who have got things they want to share. Great, and just a shout out to Kelly Brown, Reverend Kelly Brown for letting us use the space here mm. at, um, where are we? The Plymouth Congregational Church right. in, in the chapel in downtown Seattle. Yes, and a beautiful location. Yeah, yeah. well, thanks again. Thank you, it was a pleasure, Joel. Take care. All right, we did it, that was Jeremy Lent. What an amazing person, amazing conversation. That book is amazing. Pick it up. And if you want to find more about Jeremy's work, his website is his first and last name.com, jeremylent.com. And I do have show notes posted on lyman.space.com. So that's L-I-M as in Mary, E-N as in Nancy, dot space slash Emerging Future, and you can also find other episodes there with um, the abstracts for those episodes. And if you're on iTunes, uh, please just write a review quickly and give a little love. I, apparently, this helps make the episode show up in more people's feeds. And these conversations, these people are the wise elders, if you will, and we need to share their conversations with more people and share the love. You know what I'm saying? So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.